Hello, everyone. Welcome to the California Association of Tactical Officers podcast, where we discuss a variety of SWAT-related topics. We believe tactics are a science, and the art is in how we apply those tactics. My name is Marcus Sprague. And I'm Brent Stratton. And I would like to take a moment to thank two Cato Gold sponsors for supporting the work that Cato does throughout California. Thank you to NAG Industries and Aardvark Tactical. NAG Industries is a premier provider for a variety of government sales products like Vortex Optics, Garmin, Streamlight, and many other brands. From breaching tools and training to the latest in pickleball gear, there's a good chance NAG Industry carries it. Check them out at nagindustries.com. I would also like to thank Aardvark Tactical, who's been a steadfast supporter for many years. While Aardvark is famous for their signature Project 7 scalable plate carrier system, Sejin Robot, Low-Key Drone, and Kinetic Breaching Tool, they also offer customized integrated solutions to meet a wide variety of supply needs, such as complete crowd control kits, IED detection, less lethal, and many others. To learn more, check out aardvarktactical.com. Work-life balance is something we all struggle with in our line of work, and especially with the people who listen to this podcast. For those of you who enjoy getting away by spending some time on the lake, casting a line, our podcast sponsor is for you. Cope's Tackle and Rod Shop has been in business since 2015 and carries all of your fishing needs. They are veteran-owned and are proud supporters of Cato and our listeners of the Cato Podcast. Check out their website at tackleandrod.com, enter discount code Cato at checkout, and get 10% off your purchase and get free shipping on anything over $75. Cato is a nonprofit organization that exists to serve law enforcement so they can train their departments and make their communities safer. One of the ways we do this is through support from businesses like Cope Stackle and Rod. So consider supporting businesses that support us. In this episode of the Cato Podcast, I sit down with a regular guest, Travis Norton, and my co-host, Brent Stratton, as some of you may remember, um, is also here in person to discuss Chapter 4 of Sound Doctrine. And so we want to kind of discuss command and control architecture. So what is the structure that supports the command and control function? And great quote right in the beginning, good order is the foundation of all things by Edmund Burke. So the reason why you know we think this is important is that many of us have been involved in command post operations or or ad hoc hasty plans in the hood of a patrol car, those kind of things. And most of us learn that through osmosis. And as you build upon a more complex event, whether it's a tactical operation with an adversary or a train response or a fire response or where they get a little more complex and chaotic, it's very important that you purposely build a structure to support operations. Because if you don't, you're going to induce a lot of friction, waste a lot of energy, and uh, go a lot of different directions. So kind of think of it like you're rowing a boat. You have everybody rowing the same direction. But you have to give them a common operational picture. You have to give them the tools they need, the food, the fuel, the right size oars, the right size people. If you put all the short-armed guys on one side of the boat and all long-armed guys on the other side, then you row in circles. And so our job is to get everybody to row in the same pace as efficiently as possible so that it's a nice, smooth ride. And the better we do that, the, the easier we can solve our problem. So uh, I started with a canoe metaphor. Uh, was, that, was that okay? I know there's not a lot of water in Bakersfield normally, but I've never seen more rivers in this place in the, in the 25 years I've lived here. The river's running right now, man. Yeah, it was, uh, it was clean. So if you think about uh, organizations, they're designed to distribute power, affix responsibility, and allocate resources. And uh, some of those institutions have been in existence for hundreds of years and attest to the utility of how they function. None of those organizations, however, are temperamentally equipped to function well during periods of intense pressure. The business-as-usual mentality makes them too lethargic to respond in crisis. So we're talking about specialty units necessary to handle missions involving canine, SWAT teams, detectives, or explosive ordinances. They have different chains of command. So that's kind of how the chapter starts. Sid goes on to talk um, about the difficulties of managing uh, and resolving some of these tactical events. 
ultimately, who's in charge of these events? Who's ultimately held responsible by the community uh, for the result of these events? Brent, would you have anything to say about that? Who will be held responsible? Well, and you see when he's talking about here on page 42, he's talking about that every single operation is ultimately going to um, fall under the, the purview of a chief of police, but that's not going to be practical. When we're talking about some of these situations, the there's a person who's going to be ultimately uh, responsible for it, but that person might not even be the person that's out there. You know, that person very likely is going to be home in bed asleep. So being able to create teams and environments where we understand um, the responsibilities and the roles associated with uh, with how we're properly going to handle this is, is really where, where we're trying to gain that proficiency. I would add to that, and yeah, the chief of police or the sheriff is ultimately responsible. However, the incident commander is going to be the one that is ultimately held to whatever standards that the community or whoever, whatever body has decided to judge that incident commander on, on their certain course of action. And if we look back to the five characteristics of a crisis and we talk about the human factor, right? Human fa humans affect crises and in return are affected by them. And there are absolutely things or consequences for how we manage these events. And if you look back to the May Day 2007 after action report and look at who was held responsible for that. Was it the chief of police or was it the deputy chief? who was ultimately um, demoted for his lack of oversight of that entire operation. If you have not read that after action report, I, I would seriously suggest that you do for any of you that, who are in charge of drafting plans for your pre-planned events. So, you know, elected officials are going to hold, yeah, they're going to hold the chief of police responsible, but what is their, we, we, we really get away from what's the human effect? How, how well does the chief of police get along with the, the city council, with the mayor? Do they like him? Does that city mayor not like that incident commander, that captain or that lieutenant? All of those things we really don't look at sometimes. Uh, and it's something to take into, into consideration when we talk about who's going to ultimately be held responsible when something goes awry. Yes. And I spent the last couple of days uh, teaching uh, in the Central Valley from a variety of agencies, had a really good class. and. Uh, a lot of examples and frustrations with uh, what that looks like. And it's uh, not equally applied for every event or throughout the state or the country. So talk about normal police operations. We talk about command and control. Uh, the chief's name may be on it or the sheriff, but ultimately it's generally the incident commander. Um, and we're talking about a specific incident or an emergency, right? And more complex these get, such as a multi-jurisdictional event or a mutual aid event, or geographically you go through uh, different areas, the, comp the, the problem gets complex and the normal day-to-day -day command and control structure cannot sustain maintaining normal police operations and maintaining this event. So you're going to stand up a separate command and control organization, which is common to, to what we do. So what we're talking about is you have a problem that's out of normal police operations and it's tasking the ability to effectively control and command it. So you're going to have to stand up a group of people to go solve this problem and they're going to require their own support of command and control. And that term, those organizations are called emerging multi-organizational networks. So short for EMONs is what we're going to call them. Now, before you get all freaked out about another term, another word uh, that we don't often say, emerging multi-organizational networks, you just have to remember that this is a often formed in, in police work and tactical operations and in emergency operations by people on the ground that are immediately assessing the, the need to solve a problem. And we know the primary focus of effort is generally saving lives. So it may be in an earthquake fire response, police joining up with fire, joining up with search and rescue. They will identify the needs and recruit the necessary people with the expertise or technical expertise or tools and form these organizations, usually 
uh, ad hocly, right? They just identify it and they ask for help. And, and police are really good at that. The problem is if the problem's big or sustains longer, you need a command and control structure to help manage those things because EMONs are formed just to solve this particular problem, but but they're sustained by the main organization. So their their logistics needs, their equipment needs have to go somewhere. They have to ask for what to do. And at some point, someone has to grasp their hands around this and focus their response. So uh, if you want to think about uh, a routine EMON example, and, and jump in here, fellas, if you disagree, but even just think of a normal patrol call, they're going to identify what they need. So, hey, I need an arrest team. I need a less lethal. I need a canine. They're identifying people that aren't always together to form temporarily to solve this problem. I think, Marcus, one of the, and we had this, we were kind of talking about this before the podcast, is that you're right. Emons are almost that first 60 placeholder, right? We talk about the first 60, but that, you know, it could be the first five, 10, whatever that time is. We talk about that. But one of the things he talks about on page 44 is that that command and control architecture does not come into effect. And he says, once the necessity and inevitability of an EMON are recognized, it behooves an agency to plan for them. This requires command and control architecture. Digging a little deeper into what Sid is saying here is, hey, look, we came together, we're trying to solve this problem, but it's going to be prolonged, right? It's going to go on longer. So we're talking about managing a dynamic tactical problem, whether it be a natural, mechanical, or an adversarial crisis, barricade, those types of things. But we have an earthquake. We're going to have an EMON, but that EMON eventually is going to morph itself and transform itself into a command and control architecture. It's almost that initial chaos that we talk about during the first 60 minutes of a crisis or whatever that two hours. I don't know how you guys feel about that, but it just kind of came to me as you were, as you were talking because about it's that. Because it's needs-based, right? Correct. So if, if the whole thing is over, then the Iman goes back to its normal jobs. People return to whatever it is and no structure is needed. But if you sustain operations or it gets more complex, and he, and he also talks about it, it's going to change and adapt to the event. So if you consider uh, in the beginning of a fire response, you might just be evacuating people. And so you might just need police officers and firemen to work together to do evacuations. You're not doing fire protection. It's you know one of those problems. But then at some point, right, fire is going to go back and start putting out spot fires. And they, they leave that one group of people and they form back in their own. And then you may provide security for the evacuated areas. And then PG&E, water, utilities, all these people that came to help, now they're back doing their jobs, right? And then you may form up again if something happens and then re-dissolve again. So the, the, the EMON is constantly changing based upon the needs and the complexity of whatever task that it might be saturated in. And, and so I always, whenever he described this, I always just, thought of it's almost like a living, moving organism that has pulses and, and changes. And, and the longer that problem is, it, the more it needs support. Right? I think that yeah. one of the other things to touch on is it's not linear. I think we get caught in this thought process in law enforcement. Everything we do is linear. Well, it's not. There's feedback loops. There's all of these things where we need to adapt and do different things. And yes, we're staying in a hierarchical structure, but we're still cross-cutting silos a lot of times. And I think that's important for us to understand, especially as sergeants and lieutenants as we get up in the ranks, that these types of things are going to happen where we cannot, you know, we're going to adhere to that hierarchical structure, but it's okay for you to go talk to this person or talk to that person and cross-cut cross, cross those, those silos that we're in. I think that's important for us to recognize as commanders and as sergeants too. I think there's a lot of natural challenges because we can get very focused on solving a problem within your organization or within your team, within your unit. And when you start getting some of these other organizations involved, as you're talking through some examples, I'm thinking, I'm thinking some of the stories you've told me about working in the fires up in your town, when this isn't something that you've traditionally done. Now you're dealing with a variety of different other governmental organizations, private organizations, and things that are, that are coming in. And so being able to 
to see this, recognize kind of for what it is. And then, like you said, be able to work across multiple channels, working down the chain, which isn't something that goes that we do very well. It's it working up the chain is something that's uh, isn't normal as well. So I, as you guys are talking through this, I'm trying to think of what some real world examples will look like for some of this stuff. I know uh, right now we're sitting in on, on some meetings here in the Central Valley regarding possible flooding and dam storage and snow melt off and what that's going to potentially do in other areas. And we're working with, you know, private companies and water companies and river areas, people that we hadn't normally worked with on a non-traditional law enforcement um, operation. But that's a, a real world example right now that I'm thinking through of what kind of an, an Iman looks like. And it's, it's growing, it's growing legs. And as the summer comes, it might, it might shrink down a little bit. I think uh, it's really easy to, to hear this and, and it's a kind of an esoteric technical term, but to think through this is what you might be dealing with within your organization if you're if you're listening to this and and hanging through this with us. Yeah, I mean think of traditional law enforcement, right? I need something from the fire department. So I go up my chain of command, my chain of command goes across their chain of command, then it goes back down to the uh responsible holder of whatever that piece of equipment is or whatever, and then they come and talk to me. Right? And that's silos, right? And that's slow. And inefficient in an emergency situations in these EMONs, you were going to partner up with that person and have that ability just to solve those problems, uh, you know, within a framework. So we kind of skipped a little bit around, but they they have six characteristics, these uh, emerging EMONs. So uh, let's talk about the six. So the first one is that they are crisis driven. That means the nature of the situation defines the intensity, tempo, composition of the organization. So, again, they're built around a particular problem or task. And so, uh, they're, it's a crisis, and you're going to build it to respond to that particular crisis, right? So, even if your organization commonly handles emergency, like law enforcement or fire services or military units, these EMONs will still change according to each particular emergency. It's never going to look the same because every emergency is different. You might have police and fire, but you also may have utilities. You also may have water. Like each crisis is going to present different needs. The second one, they're task-oriented. So routine duties and normal operations cease for the people assigned to this. Their only focus is their crisis. There are no collateral responsibilities. This is their, because this is a crisis, remember, this is so important. This is all their job is right now. So they'll have supporting roles and functions, but as a whole, the roles and functions are solely concerned with solving the one problem at hand. And they're self-evolving. So we talked about that uh, in the first 60 minutes. They're identifying needs on the ground and meeting those needs as fast as possible by recruiting the right people and tools so they can they can get wrap their hands around this crisis. Any any other thoughts on that one? No, I think I think part of what you're talking about is they they evolve without conscious effort. Accordingly, it's in the best interest for everyone to develop procedures to make these temporary organizations more effective. I think you need to align decision making authority with situational awareness. And for those of us who are at a command post, that becomes very difficult. And one of the things that I know we've we've all talked about here at, th at this table is uh, how do I align decision making authority with situation awareness for those of us who are at it? And that goes back to trust. How are you as a lieutenant or a sergeant, a sergeant with your officers, a lieutenant with your sergeants, how are you developing that trust so that as this problem evolves, you can give those officers or those sergeants the ability to make decisions that you trust. What are you doing to develop that trust? Are you working on decision-making exercises or tactical decision exercises? Are you talking about all of these things that are going to happen, right? You know, as watch commanders, you're going home at one in the morning, you're getting a call from your sergeant. How much do you trust them when they call you? How much do you trust your officers? One of the ways to overcome uncertainty is to have trusted officers, right? If I work for Brent, or if I work for Marcus, 
and I'm one of your trusted officers, and we have a hostage problem. There's like three assumptions right there in a row. I'm not, I'm not, I, didn't, <laughs> I didn't necessarily buy into all those three, but okay. But I put myself at the bottom of it. If, if Brent says, hey, go set up on this residence over here for a hostage problem, copy that. No problem. I got it. He trusts me to do that because Brent and I have worked on the front end to develop that trust. He knows what I'm going to do if that problem goes sideways or if it goes this way or if it goes that way. But very, very few of us at these ranks of sergeants and lieutenants are spending the requisite time that we need to develop that trust. And then what happens? Do we even wonder why we're questioning our officers or us as lieutenants are questioning our sergeants as to their decision making? Well, whose fault is that? So, so I'll, I'll back off from that, but I think, it's a side I think note, the point but it, is It's made. worth talking about a little bit. If you are in a position where you don't trust the people below you, then you either haven't spent enough time with them to assess their abilities or you have failed to train or equip them. Right. You haven't put in the time to be able to train them for it. That's right? what I'm and, thinking through when you're talking through that. I'm sitting here thinking, well, have I spent that amount of time to be able to put that person in a position to make the right call? And then what do we do? Which is where the trust comes from. And most, we get, then we get mad at them. Right. And most people aren't putting in that time on the front end, though, to make sure that they're truly training their subordinates. Because I would imagine that most agencies are probably that that ten eight to training ratio time is is probably out of whack, and people aren't putting in putting in that time. And when you see that lack of trust, I think that's what leads to, you know, some of those those breakdowns in in the decisions it, it to you know looking over people's shoulder and uh, micromanaging. It, it's a total breakdown. And and this really speaks to. You know, you spend less than 10% of your career managing these kind of events over your whole entire career. And, and so to be successful in this job, you actually have to be successful in 100% of those tasks, right? But 90% of them have nothing to do with this. And so you can very quickly put this particular skill set to the side. Unless you have a passion for it or you, you really, you've really applied yourself in learning. You don't care about this until it comes to your door and you're in a command post and you're like, I don't haven't really been paying attention to what these guys do. And now it's on me. And, and we don't have time during a crisis to get you up to the years of neglect that you have done for yourself if you're in a leadership position. So think about it like, like uh, the doctor comes to you and says you're 70 pounds overweight and you're going to have a heart attack in the next six months. And you're like, no problem. I'm going on a diet today. Well, years of neglect and damage are not just going to come undone in the next three months, right? You're going to have to put your work in. And it's the same with these events. Like, you can hope they don't happen. You can think they won't happen. But history has shown that they're going to happen. And if you took a leadership role, then you have to prepare ahead of time. And we see this problem a lot where it's like, why are you doing my job? Because you don't understand your role above me or you don't trust me to be in my role. So one of us is in the wrong job. So if I'm not the right person for the job, you need to find the person you're comfortable with. If I'm, if I'm lacking in ability, skill, you know, or you don't understand your role. And so you go back to the role you're most comfortable with, which is usually your previous rank. And so, um, again, we kind of digress, but that kind of came out of the Emons. They're also time sensitive. So the fourth characteristic is they're time sensitive. So all tactical situations are time sensitive. So it calls upon the organization to deal with them and they must change and grow based upon how quickly we have to resolve the incident and they're going to ebb and flow just like a normal incident. But when the incident is over, the Emons go away. Fifth, all Emons are composite. This means that they are composed of various individuals, units, agencies, or disciplines that are required to work together to achieve a successful resolution for a given problem. Particularly complex or unique situations may require consultants, experts, disciplines not found within the parent organizations, but who have been recruited to assist in the endeavor. Brent gave a great example uh, dealing with an uh, impending flooding problem. So we're going to talk to geologists biologist, water control boards, all these different entities to kind of come up with where 
Where's this water going to go? So that's a composite. Six, they are temporary, right? They, they cease to exist as soon as the problem is gone. So I kind of skipped ahead when we we're talking about time sensitive and, and threw in the temporary as well. That was my mistake. But uh, if I want to clear that up, uh, time sensitive example, right, right out of the book here, page 43, is that as the intensity of an operation ebbs and flows, so does the organization attempting to control it. Darkness, shift changes, and inclement weathers are only a few examples of factors that may require an imon to be reduced, enlarged, or reconfigured. Thus, an imon at the end of the operation will always look different than it did at the inception. So that's the, the time sensitive uh, clarification. Um, and six, they're temporary, right? We just talked about that. When the problem's over, they go back to their regular jobs and whatever that might be. So those are the six uh, characteristics, which coincidentally are very similar to the six characteristics in just normal command and control, with the exception of being temporary. Our command and control structures for our normal organizations are not temporary. They may ebb and flow a little bit, but they're pretty structured. So the only real... The, the imons happen whether you want them to or not, right? They're naturally occurring because we're there to solve problems, right? But the responsibility is we still need to plan for them, even though we might not know what they look like. Because at some point, they are going to require a command and control architecture to support their operation. That's staffing, direction, role designation, right? Otherwise, we're going to have a very inefficient uh, response. People are going to be rowing in all kinds of different directions. So you're going to build your own command and control structure. Um, either one of you have had uh, experience on how that kind of looks. It's almost similar to me. I think of this as like the rule of three. You know, hey, uh, our organization's command and structure cannot also support the Iman. We're already supporting at capacity generally uh, regular operations, let alone this crisis. So this crisis has to have its own command and control, right? It's going to need logistics. You might have to provide additional training. You're going to want to designate roles, areas of responsibility, all those things so that we can have the most efficient response possible. So that's kind of how I look at the architecture that supports it. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think some of the largest things I've been involved in are natural crises as far as fires go. When you're having to evacuate 20,000, 30,000 people, what does area command look like? And I know Sid talks about that later in the chapter. What does a field command post look like? How do I conduct evacuations? How do I, you know, who's the incident commander? One of the things that has caused me the most consternation in the past is when you have an incident commander who does not understand how does incident command even work? What is an area command? Um, you know, I'm sending people to you or I'm telling people to go do evacuations here after you told me you have a fuel command post set up. And now we're running contrary to each other and I'm deploying people to places that you are already evacuating. And so what we do is we self-induce friction. Right? I've talked about that before. If you want to look for friction in any crisis, you look at where people are interacting. We cause our own friction. And I think having clear delineated lines of who's in charge of what and who is doing what as the operation matures, right? We're not talking about the first 60 minutes where things are going sideways. There's a little bit of chaos. So we self-induce that stuff. Once it gets calmed down, who's the incident command? Who is in charge of evacuations? Where is their field command post? Who's in charge of security? Who is in unified command with fire or even if we have unified command with another agency? whether that be fire or another discipline. Communicating is a huge challenge for us. We just don't do it. I, I, I don't know why. I think it's just an oversight or because, as Marcus pointed out, we don't do these things very often. I mean, how many of us are handling fires every week? We're, and nobody is. Really, let's be honest with each other. Who's handling a hostage problem every week? Nobody. In the entire nation, I can tell you that teaching across the country, nobody's handling a hostage problem. Um, so it's something to consider. The other thing is 
you know, we do a poor job of assigning things like Sid talks about with the intelligence section or the operations section or whatever section you need is like, look, ask any cop or ask any lieutenant who's going to be incident commander. What's the difference between push and pull logistics? And what does that look like? They're not going to know. Am I going to push my supplies out or am I going to, or are they going to come pull those? You get that. And, and you get under that business course. Yeah. Right? But under what circumstances am I going to do that? You ask, I, I guarantee you 90%, maybe more across the state, maybe the country are not going to understand the difference between push pull logistics. And what does that look like? And where do I even get my supplies? If I have a fire where things have gone completely sideways, where do I get my water and pizzas that I need to relieve guys? And how am I going to, am I going to push that or am I going to pull that? So we've done a poor job of educating our incident commanders on what a command and control architecture looks like as the crisis matures. And and there's component parts well, and, in and, the book. And, and, that's, and that's the thing is you have to take the time and I know we've preached this a lot, is you have to take the time and the effort to actually study these things. Because I can tell you the only reason I understand how these things work is because I've invested the time in myself to read things like Sound Doctor and feel and talk to Sid. I had you know, all of us the opportunity before he passed away to, to, to learn from him. Um, but the one thing that Sid did do was leave all of these words for us to, to learn from. So go ahead, Marcus. Yeah, and just to be clear, a command and control architecture is a designer system to provide for the interaction of the essential components of, and assure all efforts are directed towards achieving a common goal. So you need an architecture as necessary to define lines of authority, distribute power, and allocate resources effectively. That's all we're talking about. So no, so we don't have to complicate it. It depends on on how big the problem is, how complicated the chain that the architecture supports it. So Sid breaks it down a little further, and he says there are eight issues that must be addressed when you're designing this architecture. And the first one is common terminology and procedures. So we're putting an organization together from all different, could be mutual aid, could be, you know, like Brent said, uh, private entities, uh, private organizations, uh, community service providers, Red Cross, could be all these different, they all have different terms. And so you're going to need a structure that says, hey, this is kind of what we're talking about. And, and a great example of that is if you've ever rolled into a mutual aid event and you go to a fire briefing or you go to a medical briefing, they're using terms that we're not usually accustomed to. And and so you you need, you almost need somebody to give you like hey here's here's the definitions right and and normally we do that informally we're like hey yeah uh, I don't know what that is what are you, what are you talking about right we don't say anything we're like yeah I totally got it I don't know what that is right and that's how we do it right but the formal process if we were doing this the best practices I want to be a varsity team player here is hey hey everybody I, I'm gonna I'm running the show here and uh, just to be clear here's kind of what what our goal is today. Here's what these terms mean. It's in the back of the ops plan or the manual, or it's on this board right here. So on a, and another example would be, does anybody know how to read a fire chart, right? So the fire maps it out. They do their branches, right? Well, if you don't know what a branch looks like on a fire map and they go, hey, you're in branch six. I don't know what branch six is. They look like little bridges on the map, right? Well, that, that you got to learn that, right? I, I learned that because they put me in the command post and they went, who's over at this section? I'm like, I don't. I don't know what that little symbol means. It looks like a bridge, right? Like it's a branch. Oh, what's a branch? Like, oh, they're like, oh my God, who sent you here? Right? Like, well, nobody likes me, so they put me here, right? So, uh, so that, that's a great example of, that's a, that, that incident management team is an EMOM and they have their own language and you need to all understand it. So, so at first, how can we accomplish anything if we don't understand what each other's saying? Uh, that that's kind of he gives an example of uh, that the kind of similar example, right? Fire services describes water hoses. Search and rescue workers use it to describe rope. Like line is a different meaning for all of us, right? So uh, we all depend on mutual aid. 
Same kind of deal for complex operations. Common terminology, common procedures. Second is the organizational structure needs to develop in a modular fashion. So in addition to command and control functions, there are at least three areas that must be developed and assigned in every operation. Intelligence. So that's the, the section that assigns duty of providing accurate and timely intelligence to the commander. It's responsible for gathering, recording, evaluating, and disseminating all pertinent information related to the incident. And what's the difference between information and intelligence? So we're just throwing that in there. Yeah, I'll give you a great analogy. I think I've given it before. If you're taking notes in a math class, that's information. If you find out something in your notes is on the test, that is intelligence. I think you stole that from Anderson, didn't you? I did. Yeah. Because he used to carry around the book. And if you could steal the book, you could win tax science. And that's what he said. In this book is information. Finding the answer key to the test, that's intelligence. It's like a, like ordering a code red. He was challenging you to steal the key. So, uh, so great example, right? Um, then you have to have operation sections, right? That provides the coordination, implementation of a tactical response and responsible for the planning, assignment, coordination, execution, and evaluation of the mission. So this is the one we're most comfortable with because it's most similar to what we do. And if you've ever been involved in, in formal ICS training like Teak's all-hazard all response or even some of the role-playing that you do in Educaos or some more advanced classes, the operation's always the busiest. They're always on the radio, they're always receiving information, they're always passing it on to planning, to logistics, to finance, and that's the most tactile, right, the most visible form. I, I'm, I'm not saying it's the most important, it's just the most visible. No one gets excited to listen to the meeting, the ICS planning meeting, right? They don't get excited at that, even though that's the foundation of all operations. Then you have logistics section. Obtains and provides support, including personnel, as the operational progress. I'm going to give you a little quiz, Travis. What did Napoleon say about logistics? Nothing? All right. I got him. Normally, he, he gets this. So, I, know, I know a Napoleonic table. There you go. See, he's got a gut, but what up me? So, <laughs> so, I so mean, I, if, we, I, if we talk about ICS, we can go all the way back to the Napoleonic table which is where logistics was first used. So, so, logistics, no one's passionate about logistics. Several people in logistics. And people that understand that your army will do no good if you can't equip it, train it, feed it, and get it somewhere, which is all logistics. So if you can limit your adversary's ability to support operations, you're diminishing their ability to achieve their, their goal. Can you cite that source? Uh, yeah, field command. I can cite that from field <laughs> command, right? That's literally the definition of the center of gravity, right? Center of gravity. So uh, Napoleon had a saying, and now, of course, I can't say it perfectly, so thanks for calling me out on myself, uh, that he could tell his ability to win by his adversary's logistical support. That's how much he recognized the importance. And uh, I did not like logistics. and. Uh, Anderson was passionate about logistics. And I've never seen a colonel be passionate about logistics, but I was never in the military. And uh, so he forced me to learn about logistics. Then I realized it was pretty important. Now, I always believed it was important because they were the people that fed me, right? So I'm always nice to them. I just don't want to do their job, right? So uh, we're there. So that, that's kind of logistics as I sidetrack this a little bit. So, he talks about, uh, depending upon the size of the problem, right, will depend upon how big all these, uh, how big operations is, how big logistics is, and all that. And then third, and perhaps most important, the infrastructure must establish unified command. Many incidents, such as the riots in 1992 in Los Angeles, had no regard for jurisdictional boundaries. And a number of disciplines were required to handle huge tactical operations. Fire, police, military, disaster, health service organizations were all con called upon to work together. The unified command structure requires the implementation of the plan as accomplished under direction of one single individual 
who has been designated as the incident commander. Now, to us, that's pretty natural because our entire organizations have some kind of chain of command. But in other disciplines, in several disciplines that manage disaster responses at different levels, generally not adversarial, if if I'm making an assumption that you would agree with, don't necessarily consider that you need one person in charge. I would argue with that because based on my training and, and experience, even even if we're planning process, shouldn't be just one person. I want to get as many subject matter experts and points of view to help me make the best plan possible. But at some point, one person has to be responsible to execute that plan. And my my proposal is for one of the main reasons is not everyone's going to agree, right? And if we sit here at a table and we all have equal votes and equal say, we'll never get it done. So at some point, someone in charge goes, hey, I appreciate everyone's input. I wanted all your input, but the responsibility lies on me. Therefore, the decision is this. And then we all move forward. And as long as that person's not driving us off a cliff, you know, like lemmings, we'll, we'll be okay. And, that, and so that's one of the biggest areas is just, I see this a lot in middle managers because we, we all want to sit around at a table and make sure we all have the same situational awareness and common operational picture. And then we make a decision so that, and, and we say this, and Anderson actually told me this, he, uh, we say that it, because we want to be consistent. But as a byproduct of that socially, what are we doing? We're protecting the group, right? So if I get Brent to buy in on my decision, when we're wrong, you're attacking Brent and me, not just me. And because of that, we induce all this friction and or opposed to group thing. And I didn't really understand this concept until uh, Anderson called me one day. He goes, hey, how was your, uh, how was your first uh, command staff meeting? And I go, well, sir. Uh, it was okay, but I got in trouble today. He's like, well, what'd you get in trouble for? I go, well, I had a, I had an officer who uh, did something wrong. And so I dealt with it and it was in my purview, my chain of command. It was part of my job description to deal with this discipline. And so I, I said, this is the, the lowest level that I think is appropriate. And so I handled it. And then I, then I, 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 I have a boss, right? So I talk to my boss and oh, that's not how we do it. Well, it's like literally in my job description. So what am I missing? Like if I'm off, tell me and I'll correct it. No, 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 no. It's not that. I think you're right. But we talk about it each week so that we're all on the same page. Like, Well, why? That's like the most inefficient way ever. What if I'm not at the meeting? Then I don't talk about it for two weeks. So now this guy's getting disciplined like five, six, seven, eight weeks later. By the time, well, we're not going to talk about this because so-and-so's gone, so-and-so's gone, right? My, my, my question to him was, well, if my boss gives me the framework to work within. Hey, here's, here's what I want you to do. Here's the ruler I want you to use. And, and stay within those boundaries. This is your show. And so I, I asked him, I go, well, why? if I'm wrong, I'll correct it. Just tell me, but I don't want to keep having to ask seven other people for their opinion. That that's not a chain of command, right? That's the most inefficient way to get things done. And he goes, "Yeah, because you're looking at it from the wrong point of view." Because the point of view is you want to learn from their experience, right? Because they've been doing this longer than you. But you could get the guidelines and just follow that, and it would make it a much more efficient organization. But a lot of people don't want to be held responsible for their action. So if I get all of you to buy into it, then you attack the group, and the group defends me, versus me just saying, "Hey, it was me. I'm the one that did it." And once he explained that to me, I'm like, that's been happening my whole life. You know, and everything that would, it's not a police problem. It's a human problem, right? A human nature problem. And yet it's creeped itself into police work, which is actually structured to not do that. So uh, just an example, hopefully you find uh, that helpful. And if you're in a position of any kind, uh, that's what Travis is talking about. Push that decision making down, but provide the framework, right? Provide clear boundaries, and then give people an opportunity to learn. Did that make sense, Brent? You're looking at me like I went on a rant. was a little bit of a rant, but it was good. It was good. And I, I think we see that a lot, those kind of efficiencies within organizations. And it is, it is frustrating to see people build in that framework to, to try to protect themselves instead of just 
creating the efficiencies, but also, like you said, just being able to to provide that clarity, like Travis is talking about, providing that that commander's intent. And uh, as I'm listening to both you guys talk, I'm thinking back in my mind: Am I providing that intent? Am I providing that that clarity? And uh, I can only speak for for my organization, but I do think that that's something that's that's lacking. And the more we get to do throughout the state and Cato, and hearing you guys talk about these type of stories, things that happen in in your organizations and the courses that you teach, and hearing some of that feedback, I think it's a common theme that we see in our profession. But it is encouraging to hear you say it's it's not just within our profession; it's it's elsewhere as well. It's a it's a leadership issue. It's not not accepting that that level of responsibility, I think, uh, from command. So it's, it's good stuff. Um, next section is uh, every fourth. Every incident needs a plan. I mean, smaller incidents do not require a written plan. Some guidance is always necessary. Without a plan, the incident commander is unable to seize the initiative and dooms the effort to one of reaction. Generally, a written plan should be considered necessary whenever resources for more than one agency are used or when the incident is prolonged. Two supporting documents that would help you efficiently uh, handle this and be more effective would be a standing operating procedures, so an SOP manual, and a memorandum of understanding. So those are both documents that you can prepare ahead of time so you don't have to negotiate and figure out all these things. And it could be as simple as, I think Travis used this example before, we know that we're going to need uh, mutual aid for a fire because we have fires every other year, say. So I'm going to have a contract with, uh, fire actually does this, they'll have contracts with water trucks, right? Now, the rest of the year, that water truck doesn't work for the fire department at all. But as soon as it hits a certain level and they get a notification, they now have a contract. They don't have to negotiate it. They go and they respond to that fire, right? Same with bulldozers. Same with these supporting equipment that we don't actually need to maintain. In law enforcement, we we do this as well. But often we don't prepare those contracts ahead of time. We wait for the emergency. It could be as simple as porta potties, right? I got a staging area with 50, 125 people. Where are they going to the bathroom? Where are they getting water? Where are they getting food? I should have a contract in an emergency. Hey, I need you to make me 100 sandwiches. Otherwise, you're going to be eating the jail sandwiches. Because we have a contract with those guys. <laughs> no, thank you. Um, so, uh, I, I thought that was a pretty good example of needing a plan and, and the importance of SOP and memorandum of understanding. Something I didn't know until I came here. And then he talks about the architecture must provide a manageable span of control. So the maximum number of people that you could manage by one individual. So this is kind of where we talk about how do we drive decision-making down and break this problem up into smaller smaller bites, right? How do we eat this elephant, right? And we, and we talk about overwhelmed by events, OBE. We really, we really like the rule of three. So if you're stuck and you're getting overwhelmed by events, which means you have the inability to effectively make clear decisions, and you see this uh, in crisis and novel events, and you'll actually miss information that people are looking at you in the face and talking to you because your brain is starting to shut down and go into fight or flight mode. And so a quick way to handle this is we call it the rule of three. What are three things that I need to know right now? That'll help provide clarity of what's important. What are three things I need to do right now, which should be a direct result of the first question, and who are three people that can act on my behalf? So who are three people I can give these to because you can't do it all yourself? And the second you start doing it all yourself, you are no longer in command and will most likely or no longer in control. You most likely lose that control. And so uh, we really like to talk about the rule of three, um, and that also goes to span of control. So we, we talk about this with terrain analysis. So we have a big area of operation. We may break that terrain down and go, Brent, you're in charge of sector A. Sector A. Travis, you're in charge of sector B. You have this many resources, medics, whatever it is you have. You go. That is your kingdom. You handle that problem. Now, as the incident commander, I only have to talk to two people 
instead of the hundred that are assigned below both. So that's that effective uh, command and control. And that same principle applies on your patrol team. And same principle goes into area command. Yeah. And then, so uh, we really like that. OBE is a big problem. And uh, if you think back, I'm sure you've experienced it. You just might have not called it. What's next? He kind of gets in. Pre-designated incident facilities. Yeah. So what does that look like? What's an example of that? So that's, that's kind of a really formal scientific term. But what are we talking about? I think it's just, and it depends on the size of your jurisdiction that you're working in. Essentially, where, where can you establish command posts? Where can you establish staging areas? Where are your hospitals? Where are your fire stations? All of those different resources that you can use for different things. And it goes deeper than that. <clears throat> you know. And Sid talks about this. Who's got the keys for the high school? That's great that we can we need the auditorium at the high school, but on a Saturday afternoon, who is it that we call for that auditorium? One of the things to also pay attention to that gets neglected a lot is <clears throat> I'm going to use, you know, I've got a warrant service on a Wednesday morning at 05. I'm going to use a school as our command post and tactical staging area. Well, what happens if that surround and call out warrant service goes past seven o'clock? And now I'm having to, and, and relocating a command post isn't that big of a deal, but it is a pain. And so, you know, is it a Saturday morning or are we at a, a park where on a Saturday morning they're going to have soccer games out here at seven o'clock? You have to consider all of those, and they're almost sociological issues that occur, those density issues that occur and something that we, we, we kind of neglect sometimes. We talked about OBE and we referred to span of control. But that's literally your organizational chart. And it could be informal in a smaller event. Like, hey, Brent, take these three people. You're on the perimeter. Right? Or because you made me mad. Um, but or, or it could be more formal. Hey, we're going to draw this out on a whiteboard or an ICS chart. Brent, you're in charge of operations. Here's who you have. Travis, you're a logistics guy. You're in charge of this. Well, and we do that on day-to-day -day stuff, right? Span yeah. of control. We put people in charge of way too many things, um, and we have to guard against that, especially during emergency operations, because we'll overwhelm them quickly. And then we try to hold them accountable and wonder why things went wrong. Well, we gave them way too big of a span of control. We never, we never instructed them or educated them or trained them on how to overcome that OBE piece, right? Or if you people have heard of the rule of three, how do I do that? How do I understand trusted people? So. Because we, we, we should be purposeful in our preparedness. And it's pretty interesting because you're right. These are less than 10% of our overall career. But it's also in our job description and why we get, you know, emergency. Uh, what's our retirement plans, right? They're for emergency responders. Well, real quick, I'll, I'll get off of this. I knew I was going to bait him into one. Daryl Evans gave this analogy and he said, what in, in the city that you live in, right? In the neighborhood, what do you want your watch commander or the sergeants? If your neighbor goes crazy and starts cranking off rounds outside his house, what do you want to be? Do you want to be crappy responders? Do you want that sergeant to have no semblance of what he is going to do upon arrival with those first arriving officers? Something to think about. And we owe it to our communities to be able to manage these dynamic tactical problems. So, I like that. That's a good example. Uh, seventh is a need for a comprehensive resource management. So this could be the most simplified version is you needed a RAM. Where did the RAM go? And who does a RAM go back to, right? And then it could be more complex, like how long are the batteries going to last on your body-worn cameras or on your patrol radios or in your voice recorders or who who what piece of the city gave us this piece of equipment and how do we get it back? And then the more complex the problem, the more formal the process gets because you may be required to return this item or replace it to the agency that gave it to you. And by agency, it could be a law enforcement agency, public service agency. It could be a private, it could be a private agency, but we're all, we're using the public's money to solve this crisis. And at some point we're going to have to 
say where the equipment went or we're going to have to replace it. And if you do it poorly, you lose a lot of money or you may not get to use that equipment again. And people don't like giving you stuff when you don't give it back. So that's a, a real simplest aversion, real complex um, ICS NIMS kind of structure is who received it, who did it go out to at the end of the event, who collects it, who does it get returned to in a nutshell. And there's software programs that do it. There's charts that do it. There's tables that do it. The Excel sheet wizard people do it. But you got to have some formal process to do it. Informally, we do this all the time. And that's why you open up your patrol car trunk and you can't find your gear because someone else opened it up and took it, right? That's a problem. So that would be uh, resource allocation. Eighth is a requirement for an integrated communication system. So that has to be reliable, has to help us give uh, fast and secure information to all of the entities involved. And it kind of goes back to the three C's, right? Command, control, communication. And we know one thing about command and control, uh, about communication, is it's always a problem, right? It's a problem between people. It's a problem with, uh, am I using a common language and ruler that you understand? There's the telephone game problem, where the more people touching the information before it gets to the right person, the less accurate it could possibly be. And that's why we want to centralize that information. So it needs to go to one place. It needs to be assigned value, right, that makes it intelligence. And then we need to share it back out. And that way everyone has a common operational picture of what we're trying to accomplish. So over, you might have heard me share this percentage before, over 70% of our large-scale critical incidents involving an adversary have communication problems. Some of those are interoperability, but most of those involve people that have superfluous radio traffic on the radio. I don't need to hear you're en route. Shut up. Get yourself off the radio unless your traffic is emergent. Primary radio channel is for primary radio traffic. And to all of you sergeants out there and you lieutenants who are in charge of patrol officers, you are in a leadership position to mitigate, if not stop, this problem by telling your officers in briefing and upfront your expectation of them to stay off the radio. Um, I cannot tell you how many incidents I've reviewed or been involved in where somebody has been on the radio and look, this happened to me as a patrol officer when I was in a pretty good fight where somebody's on the radio giving a long story about a pedestrian stop they're doing. And I'm in a I'm in a good fight with somebody. I can't get on the radio because somebody's talking and that's where all of this manifests itself from and talking to people across the country where people are just talking on the radio too much. You as a supervisor can stop this problem from happening. Get in your briefings and tell them, do not talk on the radio unless it is urgent. Short, clear, concise radio traffic is important. And I say this because if you don't do it during your normal operations, what is going to happen is when an emergency or a critical incident occurs, it is going to be three or fourfold worse. And somebody who needs help, some officer who needs help, could be trying to get on the radio and one of your officers is tying up the error. And that's why this is such a serious issue. And why I talk about it so much. And I'll stop talking about it once it stops happening. Um, and, and, and it just continues over and over again in everything I review. So, Yeah, I heard a great example of, of it today, actually. Some radio traffic responding to shots fired inside a market. And uh, every and per policy, a lot of agencies have a lexical policy that says when responding code 3, you shall advise, dispatch your responding code 3 and where you're coming from. Now, why do we do that? Where did that come from? And so I heard this supervisor, they're going to the shooting, and, and it kind of comes out like every like major call, right? One item 12, one item 13, one item 17, one item 19. Like you're putting your coffee down like, ooh, this could be a good one. I don't know what it is, but they're calling a lot of people. Any other units not 10-6, please respond to the following location for multiple shots fired at the market, right? 
I'm, I'm responding code three from here. I'm responding code three from here. Sergeant gets on the radio. All units clear the air. Just go code three. So one, he's reducing the radio traffic. But two, he's insulating the officers from violating a policy. That my, my ultimate point is going back to communication. This guy understood a friction point. He understood they were trying to follow policy, but that was actually going to induce friction that they didn't have time for. And so immediately got on there and stopped it. And it was very clear. Um, hey, everybody stop talking. Just go to the call. Because in the first 60, 90 seconds on your way there, you're going to get a lot of information. And, and it's going to be helpful. But it, it's not if you're all talking. Well, and what, what you just touched on, Marcus, is that supervisor, I assume that was a sergeant, had the leadership to get on the air and actually make that happen. And, and it was calm, I, calmly said, too. Yes. And, and, and all of these issues that we see at these problems can be mitigated or solved with solid leadership, mostly at the sergeant level. So, all right, area command, Marcus. Yeah, so we're closing out the chapter. And uh, Sid talks about the concept called the Area Command Team Concept, which really was a result of uh, after-action reports from the 92 riots. And L.A. County said, hey, there's got to be a better way to do this command and control structure when it's such a, a huge, uh, overwhelming problem. So what they discovered is that many of the field commanders have been chosen because of their rank or assignment rather than their skill or their demonstrated ability. Some managers had been assigned to administrative duties for a decade or more and were suddenly thrust into the field due to their rank, not their expertise. So what they talked about and what they changed was how do we pick the right person for the right job? And they developed a structure ahead of time to address that. So they were anticipating other large-scale operations within the next several years. So they organized what they call the area command teams. So those, those, those teams are, uh, and I, I actually talked to Sid about this probably about four or five years ago. They're great for your larger agencies. They're very hard to implement for your smaller ones. Um, you know, if you have a LA County Sheriff has 10,000 plus people, you know, that's, that's easy to get a lieutenant and three sergeants to give you a Napoleonic table to roll out to a SWAT call out. But for somebody in my size agency or Marcus's, maybe even yours, Brent, that's much harder to do. Um, and we can't even get, you know, enough people to get SWAT commander and XO sometimes. But you can do that on an ad hoc basis, I think, and give everybody the training that they need. But back to the other point is, look, we have across this country, and I'll give you a SWAT example is, I would advocate that a large percentage of our SWAT commanders have zero SWAT experience. Why are our SWAT commander classes constantly full? I mean, you can't tell me we have that many SWAT teams across California. So I'll tell you, based upon being involved in that particular course, I would say it's 70 to 80% have no SWAT experience. They may be SWAT commanders, but a large majority of them are just lieutenants who are on call that may respond out as an incident commander. And there's very little training for crisis decision-making for middle managers or any anybody. Well, and then these SWAT commanders with zero SWAT experiences are retiring and then becoming plaintiff's experts. So back to the area command team. Where I see another version of this same principle is regional incident management teams. So regional incident management teams, if you're not familiar with those, they're, they're, they're throughout the state of California, and they comprise uh, subject matter experts from law, fire, and they can respond to your area upon, a uh, upon request to run your incident for you. And they're trained, and they practice, and they work together. And we had a former board member, a friend of Brent and I's, that was assigned to one of those incident management teams. And he is a uh, Northern California undersheriff now. Congratulations, Shane. We love you. And uh, he came and worked the IMT team for my fires with a couple of LAPD guys as the law branch. And I worked as a liaison uh, for them 
And that was kind of my first introduction to regional incident management teams. And then I, uh, we have a regional management team other than that one that came and, uh, and I trained with them and saw how they worked. And then, uh, when you go to Teeks, the, uh, at Texas A&M, the all hazards class, you have uh, national level IMT, uh, law and fire uh, branch folks coming and teaching you how they run. And they, they'll respond all over the country, floods, fires, earthquakes, tornadoes, and they'll help you run the incident management portion, the ICS functions, the planning function, all those functions. And they're very good at it. And if you get a chance to see it, it really opened my eyes to when you have these complex events, uh, just how efficient you can really run them as long as you designate everybody's roles and you, and you get going. And for me, that was a, a big growing experience. I, I can't talk enough about Teeks. They do a great job. It's completely funded by FEMA. If you get a chance, check it out. Tell them I sent you. They love me. I'm kidding. They're going to say, they're going to say, who? Um, you get to go out to College Station. Uh, you get to see all the other training that they do there. Uh, just some pretty incredible stuff. And you're going to get <clears throat> days of reps with these different functions as Sid's talk. So any last thoughts? I know this chapter is a little different and uh, EMONs are kind of a weird thing, but in, in all truthfulness, we, we've been doing these a long time. We just don't call them that. And then we have a novel, weird event we've never seen before, like in my my life, you know, fires that I didn't really prepare for. Um, and now you know the science behind what they are, and you can better manage them, which is going to increase your ability to succeed. Now, I would say, yeah, this is a long chapter, but one of the things that I think we really want to impress upon our listeners is your ability to articulate what your command and control structure is, what is an EMON, under what circumstances is that occurring in case you are called to the carpet, whether that be by the public, whether that be by your command, or whether that be in court, civilly or criminally, is one of our main goals of this podcast. And Marcus, I think, and Brent both will agree with this, is we want to give you the tools that you need to explain the why. And that is something that we have a really hard time doing in, in law enforcement. We don't want anybody that listens to this to be sitting in court and not going, I can't articulate, like, I don't understand, I can't explain this. Why did we deploy chemical agents? Well, that's a tactical dilemma involving space. We're trying to deprive our, you know, we go down that road. We want you all to have those tools available to you to articulate these things. And I think that's super important for, for all of the listeners out there to, to get is that's our main driving focus of, of this podcast. This was a tough chapter for sure, but uh, I learned a lot just from, from sitting here reading through it with you guys and, and talking through it. So give me a lot to think about. Thank you. So let me tag along. Thanks for listening. If you, uh, do you want to do a deeper dive on uh, how EMONs are used in field command? He breaks them down a couple layers deeper. Um, but uh, we hope that we provided, uh, you know, a little bit of guidance on what the chapter is talking about if you're listening. But obviously, uh, we encourage you to read it. And if you have any questions, uh, you can call Brent directly. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I'll forward them to both yeah. of you. Uh, thank you, gents. I appreciate you being here. Cheers, mate. Thank you for listening to the Cato Podcast. To become a member of Cato, check out our website at catotraining.org. If you have a topic suggestion, please send them to podcast at catotraining.org. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend and rate us on the platform of your choice. 